Good morning. Today's reading is from John 8, 31 through 47. Hear the word of the Lord. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen from my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. If I haven't met you and we have not met one another, which usually logically one goes after the next. Um, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. And for those of you who have been around Christ Community for a minute, I send you greetings from uh, Creekside Church in Gainesville, Florida, where a gentleman, a pastor by the name of Mike Roop, uh, is pastoring. So I had the opportunity to be with him just this last Sunday, I preached there at his church uh, to give him a break, um, and in return, I uh, got to stay at St. Augustine for a little bit. So, very relaxed outside of the treacherous, whatever, 16 hours to get back, <laughs> but it was great. It was exceptional, and it's truly wonderful to be with all of you. And I want to begin kind of with just a poll of sorts by a show of hands. That's always fun, right? Not a round of applause, so don't get it confused. Um, a show of hands. How many of you are eager, how many of you are eager uh, to give up your rights, your self-determination, and become enslaved? Great. Okay, good. So no one's crazy in here. So that's good and encouraging. Of course, right? Um, <clears throat> nobody is eager to become enslaved. Why? We all want to be free. Every single person in here has a desire for a level of freedom. To the point that Queen Bee and Kendrick Lamar 
And their brilliant song, Freedom, would sing, Freedom, freedom, I can't move. Freedom, cut me loose, singing freedom, freedom. Where are you? Because I need freedom too, right? We all want it. We sing about it. It's iconic to who we are as a culture, this longing, this desire to be free. And yet, even though everyone in here, we can agree, wants to be free, we don't all agree on what it means to be free. I mean, let's look at a couple just different images we have in our culture, like flags, right? Flags are symbols, at least in the United States, uh, as, a, as a symbol of freedom. And even the different kinds of flags that different United States city citizens use communicate different levels of freedom for different kinds of people. Not every flag in every country symbolizes freedom. It captures the key values of that culture. But our flag in the United States here, it's mainly a major image of at least a certain kind of freedom. Now, yard signs are another way that people communicate where they think, you know, free freedom ought to be. This is, I thought this was a good one because nobody knows what those issues are. So um, <laughs> it allows me to be political without being political. So there you go. But that's the deal. We've got yard signs that communicate what we think freedom looks like. And you can drive around downtown and see all different kinds of yard signs that are saying, hey, this is what freedom means. This is what it looks like. This is who it includes. This is how it's encapsulated. Politicians run on a particular platform of freedom. Social movements are geared towards bringing or excusing or limiting even certain freedoms. Even in your job, HR is helping with certain policies to protect freedoms. We have a sense of fear, usually as human beings, when we feel like the freedoms we hold most dear are threatened. We have a sense of peace, shalom, or even Rest when we feel like the, pe the, the, the freedoms that we hold most dear are actually secure. Freedom, it is an important component to who we are as human beings. And even though we all want to be free, the perspectives on what it means to be free may be just as diverse as there are as many people in this room, even here, even amidst those who would claim to be followers of Jesus. And so the question that bubbles to the surface that's anchored in our text today is what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be a liberated self? Hmm? What does that look like? And since we are a church centered in on the person and the work of Jesus Christ and guided and centering in on his word, we're going to ask the question, what does Jesus have to say about what it means to be free? And here's what's so fascinating. This is what I appreciate about the Bible, is that you find people who are exploring Jesus, or here we see in the text people who believed Jesus, but they don't agree with how Jesus would describe freedom. They're wrestling. I mean, these are people who are starting to invest and even follow Jesus, and Jesus presents freedom, and they're like, wait a second, right? They have this push, this wrestling with where he is. Look with me at John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples or my apprentices, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what I love is their response to that is insult. <laughs> They're like, how dare you think we're not free? Who do you think you are? Which we're going to come to find out. When we hear about freedom from Christ and it feels insulting, it's one of the greatest signs that we are far from freedom indeed. Now, we're going to walk through 
this passage, and we're going to see if you're a note taker, this might be helpful. I don't do this all the time, but three particular essentials from Jesus is what it means to be free. As we seek to spend a little bit of time in God's word, understanding what Jesus means for us to be free. And this is couched in a broader flow, right? We've been walking through the gospel account of John. Now, it's not about John. It's about Jesus. But John was a close friend of Jesus, one of Jesus' best friends, knows him better than anyone in this room, better than any historian knows Jesus. John knew Jesus. And he's wanting to give us a testimony of his experience with Jesus and invite us to look over his shoulder to know who Jesus is. And as we're walking through now this part in John's gospel, we've entitled it Signs of Life. That's the name of our series. And today we're looking at freedom because freedom is an integral part of the life we all long to live in some way, shape, or form. And it's, it's couched here in John chapter 8. So if you've been with us over the past couple weeks, John 8 is where Jesus is going through a longer season of teaching. He doesn't just do nice things. He actually wants to inform our minds. He wants us to have correct thoughts of who he is and what he's come to do. When you're walking with Jesus, he shapes your mind, he shapes your heart, and he empowers your hands. It transforms every aspect of who you are. And he's building this broader argument. And when we come to Jesus here, as he's laying out freedom, as I said, these first listeners, these first followers, they feel insulted. And look at what they say here in chapter 8, verses 33 through 34. They answer him, they answer Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly. So when, whenever you see that in the text, especially from Jesus, he is making a statement based upon his own authority, based upon who he is. That's a special marker when you're reading throughout John's gospel. He's saying, what I'm about to say is based upon who I am, my authority. I don't need to reference point no one else, okay? This is me speaking for me from me. Okay, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So Jesus is saying, hey, there are certain actions, these practices, these in many ways become habits of sin, these destructive actions. And they may be thoughts that have been fed, so not necessarily the initial spark, but thoughts that have been fed, actions that have been portrayed, feelings that have been stirred up. It's the next act after the initial act. There are these practices of sin. And if you're engaged in these particular practices, then that's a sign you're a slave. It's, it's a sign that you are not as free as you thought you were. And the real tragedy here is that they don't see it, and oftentimes we don't see it at all. And so here's what we're going to see. Here's the first sign or the first essential to freedom from Jesus's perspective. And what I've done today is something a little bit different. Um, I'm gonna use images instead of exact wording, like bullet points. Sometimes you don't need to just write the words, you need to capture the idea. So I'm gonna use images for um, our main points today as we walk our way through. Just a little insight as to where we're going. Don't know why I shared it with you, but there you go. Um, just so you're like, why is that picture there? And not words, that's why. So the first essential to freedom is this. freedom according to Jesus, means is being empowered to say no, even to yourself. 
Freedom is being empowered to say no even to yourself. This is where you get these practices of sin, these things that we're saying yes to in our own agency. You know, I, I have three children, so those of you who don't know me, and one thing I never really had to teach my kids is how to say no to me. <laughs> that is a natural no, okay? There are a lot of natural no's that we have in life. It's like there's, there's moments they learn, as soon as they learn mommy and daddy, they learn no and learn how to put those words together. No, mommy. No, daddy. Wow, this is great. This is fun. So that, that's something that's very much innate in us. And there's something that's beautiful about that. We should have healthy boundaries and things along the way. But saying no to others is a really natural thing. Now, teaching my children to say no to themselves for the sake of others, that is powerful, but it's trained. It's not natural. It's over time saying, hey, you got five Cheerios, you ate three of them, why don't you share the other two, okay? You even got the majority, so let's settle it down, right? Say no to the extra two so that everybody can have some Cheerios at the table. That's an unnatural no. Setting up limitations, even on yourself, that you can say yes to others. Saying no to yourself, and that's what you see here in this image, is someone wrestling with themselves, wrestling through the internal realities of our own world, and that is a freedom that is extraordinarily powerful, but not often spoken of. And frankly, it can feel countercultural in our world today. Often when we talk about freedom today, we talk about what philosophers may indeed call absolute negative freedom. When we think of freedom, we think of, okay, so negative freedom is freedom without, so the freedom of constraints. So that is the absence of things, negative freedom. Absolute negative freedom means the relinquishment of all constraints. It's the idea that I want no limits on me and my decisions. That's what we celebrate. That's what's become sacred in our culture. Do not put any barrier before me and what I want. That's freedom. And anything that actually begins to impede on that begins to be communicated as a crossing of boundaries. If there's any limitation to me freely choosing what I think I deserve, and there's baked into that all kinds of assumptions that I know it's best for me. Within that is the idea that if I know it's best for me, and frankly, if I know it's good for me, then I should have zero limitations to pursuing what I think is best for me as long as I don't harm, whatever that means, because that also is a very ambiguous term, harm those whom I deem to be human, and I think that last section is really important, those whom I deem to be human. Because I'm going to tell you right now, both political parties, whether Republicans and Democrats, have categories of humans that they deem not human enough. And so freedom means relinquishing all sorts of boundaries or constraints so that I can pursue what I want, even if it quote-unquote harms someone that I'm now going to dehumanize. Absolute negative freedom. And it happens both, frankly, for religious folks and non-religious folks. You see, this isn't a them problem. This is usually where we go, see, they don't understand freedom. They don't understand. This is an us problem, a human problem. Each one of us wrestling through what are appropriate constraints. Are there such things as appropriate constraints? Or should I just always be able to choose what I want, when I want? And anyone who gets in my way has actually crossed my human dignity. This is a question. 
But Jesus, he makes a distinction here. Because even as they're responding in verse 33, they're saying, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. They're not talking sociopolitically here because they are under the oppression of Caesar. To be very clear of the cultural context in that day, they understood they were being oppressed by the government, that their freedoms were genuinely limited. They have an understanding that who they are as Jewish people with the heritage of Abraham coming from and having the practices of Israel, that they are not enslaved to anyone, that they are free to God. And Jesus says, wait. There's more going on inside of you than we care to admit. Before we stand up tall and mighty as if we are utterly free, beware. Are you even aware what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your mind? And what we tend to do when we think about limitations and we even want to say, okay, listen, I want to be empowered. Yes, I want to be empowered to say no more. And especially to the oppression that men have caused women or women have caused men or the different racial dynamics or the class dynamics or the wrestlings through how big or how small a government should be. All of those, yes, are important conversations and things we should be wrestling through. But where Jesus goes of first importance is to the heart. Because as much as we can try create laws and create systems and create structures which are very important if we eliminate all constraints but we're enslaved in our heart we will now have the freedom to destroy each other without limitation and maybe even to destroy ourselves without any recourse Jesus goes where no government can go he goes to the heart and sin oh man what a fascinating word. Ow. Right. Ow. <laughs> sin hurts. It does. And the hard thing is, is sin isn't what you define as sin. According to Jesus and across the pages of Scripture, sin is missing the mark. Who defines the mark? It's God's design. What he has portrayed across his biblical narrative for our good that we might know that we're not wandering in the dark. This is what I've designed for you. This is what I long for you. And yes, there are areas of gray, but he's guiding us by his spirit. And what sin is, is saying, God, your design's all good and everything, but I'm going to go after this. And sometimes it's not even voluntary. Christians throughout history have come to a deep understanding that there are certain moments in life where we do indeed have agency, where we get to choose our actions. And then over time, those actions, when repeated, because you have a certain cycle or a loop that brings a various reward, whether a dopamine hit or what have you, then those actions become habits. And the further you go down this train from actions to habits, then they eventually become compulsions. The less freedom you have to even make those decisions. You start off with a lot of agency and you start to create these neural pathways. And then what felt so free at first feels so necessary in the end. And it's no longer freedom you have. It is enslavement or another word we use addiction. And it's not just the worst things, whatever the culture wants to at that particular time define as the worst thing. Every culture around the world will talk about the worst things, and they sometimes rank all over the place depending on where you are in your social location. But the worst things and the addictions that can destroy us can be as simple as our dreams, our expectations. We get addicted to those. Subpar strategies that allowed us to survive over here that are now wreaking destruction over here. They worked for a little bit, long enough to get addicted to them and long enough to keep breathing. And now 
and a new space, the breeding destruction, and we feel utterly confused why what we thought and feel so compulsory, so natural, is destroying us here. We've become slaves, not only to the worst things, but even subpar good things. When was the last time you said no to something because God said, this is going to destroy you, even though when you stepped into it, it felt free? When's the last time you said no to something because God says, this is going to destroy you and enslave you, even though it felt in the moment? starts off with a pinch of lust, a twinge of anger, a shtekel of hate. I don't know. I guess I started going down a road. I couldn't finish. Greed. And if we begin to protest and say, you know what? I'm no slave. I'm still making these decisions. I'm still exploring these options. You say that now, and we come with our excuses. And for these early followers of Jesus... They came with their status. There's no way we're slaves because of our heritage. There's no way that what you're saying, that I even need your freedom. We've got what we need. And that indeed is the sign of just how deep their slavery is. Well, the journey continues on, or the conversation rather, and and they say, well, Abraham's our father. And, and Jesus goes on to say, well, let's just tease this out. Children tend to, uh, when a father is a good figure, try to imitate that father, right? And so if Abraham were here, you're saying you're a child of Abraham. If Abraham were here, and we, we can look across the pages of Genesis, look in chapter 18 of Genesis. There are these messengers of God, and Abraham welcomes them in, and he listens to them. That's what Abraham did when God was sending him messengers of truth. Jesus comes, sent from God. The children of Abraham ought to receive him, but they don't. And Jesus says, you're no child of Abraham. And they said, well, okay, we're children of God. And he goes, whoa, all right, next level. Let's talk about that for a second. And that's where we go to verse 42. Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You of your father, the, dev the devil, and, you, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, they're stuck. They keep wanting to believe that they'll take the good thing that's right in front of them, that they'll follow what God's doing, but they're stuck in this paradigm. They're holding fast to, to old promises to the point that they're actually misunderstanding what God was doing in the past to set up for what he's doing uniquely, historically, in Jesus. And this is what leads to our second component of freedom. Not only is freedom being empowered to say no, even to yourself, that's an extraordinary power and an extraordinary freedom, 
even against slave of sin in the depths of our hearts. But secondly, freedom is being enfranchised to say yes to what's real, even when it's disorienting. And that's what's really important. It's saying yes, it's being enfranchised. When someone's disenfranchised, their agency, their ability to pursue and speak on behalf of themselves has been stripped. But here, freedom is being enfranchised to say yes to what's real, to what's good, to what's beautiful, even when it feels utterly disorienting. Why would it feel disorienting? When you've been living a lie and you've been breathing in and soaking in a lie for so long when somebody tells you the truth, that's like going from like 38% gravity on Mars to finally stepping on Earth and you're like, whoa, what's going on? This is a different world. I don't know how to navigate. How do I make sense? Which one is true? It feels so bizarre. It almost feels absurd. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that there is someone who is out to dismantle your life. Someone. This is not just you and Jesus. If I don't follow Jesus, then I'm going to make my path. No, it's either you or the devil. Who are you going to believe? Someone who is anti, not just Jesus, but someone who is anti-Christ, meaning the Messiah against his purposes in the world, and yes, even his way of suffering to bring about liberation and freedom. It is someone who is anti-you, someone who's anti-me, someone who's anti-communal flourishing. And his lies are really convincing because they're always made of half-truths. They always bring just a little bit of the truth, and you go, oh, that's really fascinating. You know, he's got a really good point there. It's not that he doesn't give any of the truth. No one is that absurd and, frankly, I'm going to say it's stupid, to completely miss all of the truth. And the evil one knows that. The best lie has a whole lot of truth but just enough deception to hook you and pull you where you never thought it would go. Always. Those are the best lies, and he's the best. He's the one who's invented this in order to bring about your death. Just enough for you to say, I agree with that, but, but I don't know if I agree with that, but I guess I'll just keep going all the way. No. The best lies, and they're convincing. They may even have the right end, but the wrong strategies to get to that end. So they don't have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, whoo, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Look out. Oh, but it doesn't, no, it doesn't need to be any of those things. Like that's not, you just need to get to the end doesn't matter how you get there. Or even completely different alternatives to reality. Oh, you say that thing is good? Actually, that's evil. Oh, this thing over here that you thought was evil? It's actually good. Different alternatives. These alternatives to reality. And the evil one, he's bringing these lies. And they're coming in various avenues in our world. Because here's the deal. The evil one knows. Actually, you and I actually have a lot of power. He can't restrain us to the utmost. The evil one knows that his best tactic is to tell us a lie so that we restrain ourselves. And then we feel like we're making the decision all by ourselves. Look at me choosing freedom, but you bought a lie, hook, line, and sinker. I don't know why I'm using a lot of fishing analogies. I guess I was on vacation. (laughs) And listen, this can happen to religious people. Look at Peter. Go to Matthew. He says, Jesus, you're the Christ. And then Jesus is like, yes, that's right. Good job, Peter. 
and now I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die. And he's like, don't you dare go to the cross. Don't you dare, Jesus. And what does he say? Get out of the way, Satan. He just had confessed that Jesus is the Christ and completely misses God's strategy for bringing about liberation, freedom, and forgiveness. The, con- the, the, the desire, especially for the religious, towards power, denomi- domination, and force is one of those convincing lies of the evil one that constantly seeks to lure us away from the way of the cross and the work of the Spirit. It's very counterintuitive. That's one of the ways for the religious. For the non-religious, it's often the idea that somehow, as a non-religious person, you're being very original. Seeking to discover on your own a path that's uncharted. And what often happens is a subpar experience of an extraordinary good. I'll give you one example, and it's going to sound really outdated, but it's not because it is. It's just because our culture has moved so far, far past it. Sex outside of marriage. And I didn't say sex outside of engagement, okay? Got real quiet in here. That's good. Um, I'm serious about this. Joseph and Mary were betrothed, and everybody was surprised she was preggers, okay? That's because sex was designed for marriage. You've made promises to one another and a commitment before God, and then you give your body to someone. That's where trust is cultivated, and your body actually mashes the actually the, the, the emotional intensity and the promises you've made to one another and the intimacy of that. Sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime is going to erode and destroy and what, because listen, and there's a whole bunch of different pseudo lies that come with this, right? It's like, well, we got to see if we're compatible, then to see if the marriage works. There are no stats that show that those who live together before they're married get less divorces. None. That's a lie that's out there that people have just started to buy. It's just not there sociologically, okay? Secondly, Who's to say that your compatibility in bed is the ultimate definer as to whether your marriage is going to make it? That's not any... But we believe this because we've made sex everything. And we go worshiping the idol of sex, and then we just say, you know what, but we'll save a lot of money. Okay, greed's everything. (laughs) It's either money or sex, and sometimes they hang out together. And we're believing all of these lies, and what the evil one wants us to do is erode his best gifts and say, just wait. God's saying, I've actually designed this to really bring joy. It doesn't mean it's perfect. We're still broken people and we've got to wrestle through it. But you go this route, it's not going to bring what you think. Don't listen to the lies of the evil one. And we're like, ah, it's outdated. They don't know. That's my parents' generation. All the lies. Okay, I'm going to get off that one. But those are the ways, the religious and the non-religious. We've got these lies that are floating around. And I know some folks may be like, well, Gabe, sounds like you're living into a boogeyman, boogeyman ideology. You've been watching too much Stranger Things, right? And I know, actually, if you look across the study of religions and cultures, it's actually pretty common for cultures and religions to have, like, this mythical, dark creature, like this scary being who comes and will get disobedient children, you know, and these types of things to help cultivate and guide people towards virtue, Here's the deal. Some people have said that and say, see, this is just all mythical and all made up. That's, or maybe, just maybe, here's the other side. This is where our biases come in. Maybe they're tapping into something that's true of reality that Jesus makes explicit. That there is someone who's out to get you. 
There is someone who's seeking to dismantle you. There is someone who really longs for you to believe these lies and to make them so believable that they feel like the truth. They sound like the truth. And the reality is for me, the reason I believe the devil exists is because Jesus rose from the grave. Because Jesus highlights that there's someone who's out to get me. And if somebody will come and live a perfect life, die a sufficient death, defeat death, come back for me, and then people are dying because they saw he was alive, I'm going to believe he knows more about reality than I do. And he's saying, listen, pay attention. It may feel so good, it may feel so right, but it may be indeed one of the deepest lies. Beware. But the devil's not the only one who lies. Sometimes we become our own saboteurs. And that's why I've been reading a lot from like just Christians throughout, you know, church history lately. Um, and some of these Christians, they take very seriously how we just as human beings seek to sabotage ourselves. And part of this has to do with our compulsions and our addictions, even to subpar good things instead of the best things. And some of these folks who were really diving to talk about the dark night of the soul. The Christian mystics, friends, are fascinating. I'm not saying I endorse everything that everybody says. Of course, whenever somebody says something up here, they're like, oh, he's buying it all. No, 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 no. So just, just because I mentioned something doesn't mean I believe everything, okay? But one thing that I have been really fascinated, and some of you may even be coming here today and saying, Gabe, we're talking about freedom, but I don't feel free. We're talking about what comes in Jesus, but right now I don't even feel God at all. I don't even know why I came here. Maybe the coffee is pretty good. Well, I've actually been really helped by two Spanish Christians from the 16th century, uh, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. Um, and they dive deep into this spiritual darkness, what they call the dark night of the soul. And it's actually not all negative. Sometimes the dark night of the soul is seen as exclusively something that happens episodic or it happens very short and, and then it's always really traumatic. Sometimes it can be decent and it can go very long or even the whole of your life. But you're in this obscurity. You're in this place wondering, what is God doing? Where are you working? The, the old strategies of spiritual practices you feel like are coming up dry and you find yourself hungering for something more, longing for God to give you something. And I love this because our brothers and sisters throughout history, they have an extreme skepticism when it comes to us as human beings. They're like, listen, this is not like a positive perspective that if you're just given all the freedoms you want, then you're gonna make the best decisions about your life. No, 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 no. This is what's so fascinating about the dark night of the soul. Check this out. They say, if we are honest, I think we have to admit that we will likely try to sabotage any movement toward true freedom. If we really knew what we were called to relinquish on this journey, our defenses would never allow us to take the first step. Sometimes the only way we can enter the deeper dimensions of the journey is by being unable to see where we're going. You wouldn't want to go there. You don't, want to, you don't want to pay the cost to actually experience that kind of freedom. And God's like, I know you can't handle it. <laughs> I know you won't even let it. We're going to go dark for a minute. Boosh. And you're just going to have to trust me. We're going to trust that I want your best, even though you have no evidence for that right now. You see, for Christians throughout generations, they've understood 
that freedom is not merely the relinquishment of destructive idols or broken desires. It's the liberation of better and truer desires to actually want what's best. And that may not come until the end, but it may be working. It may be tweaked here and shaped there by the power of the Spirit. And here's what's so fascinating. They became so content with what God had done in the past and frankly even manipulated what God had done in the past that they couldn't see the best Jesus right in front of them. True freedom is being enfranchised to say yes to what's real even when it's disorienting. Even when you don't know, you can't even make sense of it. And that's what I've also appreciated about the Christian mystics. They're like, listen, intellect is important, but it can sometimes be a barrier because we justify away. We justify away what we don't want to believe. Oh, and our intellect can be a powerful tool in that regard. But that leads me to our last point, our last essential to freedom. Freedom is being eternally loved and shaped by Jesus. I know it's a little cheesy of a picture, but hang with me, okay? Somebody's like, all right, Gabe, you've been in the woods. Um, the key to freedom, always for Christians, and across the biblical narrative, is this deep union with God, this intimacy of belonging to him and him belonging to us, a deep surrender to him, even when it doesn't make sense. You see, when it comes to freedom, freedom isn't a thing. It's a someone. And when you're with that someone, he transforms you to be free wherever you are in a category that can't be restrained. God himself is the space of freedom. He's the agent who's inviting us to be free. And it's not just any God, right? Clearly here in the text, Jesus is making abundantly clear, and this is where these early followers were wrestling the most, is that it's not just any God, but it's exclusively Jesus. Look with me here, John chapter 8, verses 45 through 47. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Listen, listen, listen. This is really important. This is a sidebar. Sometimes we can tell ourselves if we just say the truth clear enough, if we're just compassionate enough, then people will finally believe Jesus no one's more compassionate to Jesus. No one's more clear than Jesus. And we, when he explicitly says the truth, that is the exact reason they reject him. Okay, I just want to say that on the side. <clears throat> Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So he lands the plane pretty intently. And intensely. <laughs> they first said, hey, we're part of Abraham. And he's like, you don't have any of the signs to be children of Abraham. We're actually, we're children of God. And he's like, well, people who are of God would receive me because I'm God. But you're not receiving what I have to say to you. And you see, this is so important. If we want to know freedom, we have to come with an ever-present welcoming posture. And sometimes Jesus guides us into the darkness so that we can't do this, but we're doing this just so that we can receive something. <laughs> It's receiving not only his, his practices, reading in God's word what Jesus did and following him in that, but receiving his precepts, his commands, not his suggestions, as good for us, guiding us to life and life abundant. It's this deep commitment 
and constraining and being wrapped up in the love of God. It's there we go from slaves to self and to sin to being children of God. And it's frankly this third element of freedom that makes the first two possible. You will not be empowered to say no to yourself. You will not be truly enfranchised to say yes to what's real when it's disorienting unless you know you are loved, that's important, and being shaped by Jesus. Love demands a constraining of freedoms to experience the explosion of the best freedoms. Always. In every relationship we experience that. You have to say no to one dinner date so you can say yes to another. We have limited freedoms and limited capacity to say yes to certain things. And here's what I love. You know, once again, here's another important figure. St. Bernard, I guess that sounds funny, not the dog, of Clairvaux. Um, and he talks about He's a 12th century abbot, and he talks about how even our desires for ourselves are transformed. Because sometimes we can say this is so other-centered. Well, how do, what's my relationship with myself if I'm really experiencing freedom? Check this out. He says, we usually begin, he says, by seeking gratification and fulfillment through our own devices. He calls this the love of self for one's own sake. When life teaches us that that doesn't work, we often turn to God, a higher power, and seek the consolations that are given through grace. In Bernard's words, this is the love of God for one's own sake. Gradually, we find ourselves falling in love, not with the consolations of God, but with God who gives the consolations. This is the love of God for God's sake. And check this out. In the atmosphere of this love, Bernard says we finally begin to discover how lovable we, selves, we ourselves are. Love of self for God's sake. You see, you see, and the, the, the short circuit of this is if I want freedom, if I want real expression, I got to take off all of these constraints and then I'll be me. I'll be fully me and I'll be okay with me. That is another lie of the evil one. Instead, what the gospel says is constrain yourself to Christ. You recognize that the world won't fulfill you, so come to God and he will console you. And at first you love what he gives you rather than him. And then as you spend more time with him, you love him for him. And then as you spend more time with him, he allows you to even love who he's made you to be because of him. That is categorically different kinds of freedom, friends. And it makes no sense in some ways because you have to go through a journey to get there when it feels like self-esteem is the shorter path to get to that goal, but it won't deliver I mean, I'm off a vacation. I wasn't that fired up. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so let me ask you, friends, in the midst of this counterintuitive but beautiful truth, like, where do you need Jesus' liberation? Hmm? When you look at this freedom that he brings, where do you need freedom today? This kind of freedom. Where do you need him to step in? Maybe you don't know, and that's okay, too. Maybe it's as simple as inviting him to come and show you. Because listen, you're shaped by Jesus or you're shaped by someone else. So go to the word. Reach out to people who are other followers of Jesus. Pray and ask God and anticipate that he's going to be working. And at times it may feel obscure and that's okay and actually normal. It's called the dark night of the soul. And you may be wrestling and wondering, but that doesn't mean you've been abandoned. And that actually doesn't mean you're not free. You just might be on the path of liberation that he has you on for you and for him and for others.
And maybe a way to help this, and some of you are like, oh, this is a new decoration. This is actually something for my travels. Uh, <clears throat> way to think about two different kinds of freedom um, is that you could either experience the freedom of driftwood or the freedom of a tree. Uh, the freedom of driftwood, like driftwood's, I mean, it's in many ways, it's, it's gorgeous, right? Uh, I, at least I think so. Um, I actually found out on the beach, like you're picking up shells and you're picking up drift. Like it's all death. <laughs> the beach is just death on display. But anyway, um, <laughs> but this driftwood, this driftwood, right? It has. It's not locked down to anything. It can go wherever the waves take it. It's no longer attached to a tree. It can go up on a shore. You can take it to your office, which is where it goes for me. You know. But the reality is is that when it's broken, it's broken forever. The reality is, is it will forever be like this, if not further decomposed. It's on its way to death, not life. It's free, but it's going further towards death. Still, static. It's fragile. When you're around it, you have to be real careful. You're afraid you might break it. That's one kind of freedom. Another kind of freedom is to be a tree. You're planted. You don't move. <laughs> You're anchored. You don't get to see the same sights that a piece of driftwood does. You don't get to have the same experiences that a piece of driftwood does. But over time, that tree will grow tall. Over time, the tree will grow stronger. When the winds blow, it can flex and move to the, the changing seasons. And given 100 years' time, this will become nothing more than dust or that will become a mighty oak. Shaped. You can lose a branch. You can climb a tree. Oh, man, I love climbing trees. A branch can fall off, and it'll still be okay, and it'll heal. It can actually take roughhousing. You can be rough with a tree, and it's not going to shrivel up and break and be broken forever. That's the kind of freedom that Jesus wants to offer us. Planted in him, if we remain with Jesus isn't this what we see? The son, when he sets us free, he sets us free indeed. If you abide in his word, you stay in it, you remain with him, you become what he's shaping you to be, and he frees you in the way that his truth, his reality, which is true reality, calls us to be. And this freedom that Jesus offers is counterintuitive, but that's why there's so much hope, because there's new horizons. Our culture offers a certain level of freedom, but the horizon is limited. Jesus, when he comes offering freedom, it feels very disorienting. It's different than often the narratives we hear elsewhere. Sometimes it aligns with part of it. Like I said, it's not holy lies. So it's like, wait a second, there's some truth here. Yes, don't let that shake you. But that means that the horizons of what God wants to do in you, the level of freedom he wants to bring is beyond what we can I mean, imagine the freedom from sin, the freedom from oppression, the freedom from self-preoccupation, the freedom from needing to prove something to someone else, freedom to not need to prove anything to yourself. And that kind of freedom, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter your circumstances, while that's important as Christians to be engaged in the social dynamics of our world, this kind of freedom that Jesus offers allows people in all different social statuses to be able to engage in experience. That's how powerful this is. 
And no one can take it away. This is an inheritance you have that no matter what comes, even if your very breath is snuffed out, your freedom is still as strong as ever. And not even death can take this away. And I want you to think about this, that one day, the seed that God has planted in you, the good work he's begun, the freedom he's beginning to slowly permeate throughout all of you, one day will come to completion and full fruition. And one day the work he's doing in you, he will finally do fully around us such that all of creation will be made new and the freedoms we experience in Christ will be the freedom we experience in all of creation. That's what's coming. If we remain with him, even... Even when he calls us away, what feels like freedom to follow him. If we will remain with him, he's always willing to remain with us. Let's pray. God, thank you for the freedom we have in you. It doesn't always look like the freedom or the exaltation and, and shouts of joy that often are portrayed. Sometimes it's really hard and weighty. But we thank you that you have pursued our freedom even to your own death by giving up your freedoms that we might know them more richly in us by the power of your spirit. So God, wherever each of these individuals, these, these people who are either curious or followers of Jesus, I pray, Lord, you would bring deep liberation and freedom to their hearts, to their minds, that make them then catalysts for freedom and liberation in our communities and for your world. That's only done in and through you. May we rest in your love and remain in the shaping power of your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, now, like I said, we